What I've found is that my work goes out into a world that's becoming more and more isolated, more and more elitist, more and more detached from the lives of others. Works of art that cope with mortality and tenderness, compassion and emotion, fragility and vulnerability, and the hard truth of how precious and fleeting life is. Artists just have to keep doing that. Those are the words of Eric Fischel and April Gornick, two artists who are my guests today on Poetics of Place, who've reached beyond their own studio practices to play an activist role in their hometown of Sag Harbor, New York. I don't think that the role of the artist has changed significantly from the beginning of art time, (laughs) in the sense that the talent that artists have are the ability to order chaos and to give language, to give images, to give communicating the joys and the sorrows and the dramas of life to the culture that they're a part of, to the time that they're a part of. And so the artists who are working today are trying to figure out exactly what is the relationship. How do you make sense of the world? There's a lot of sea changes going on that aren't just global dramas, but are also class dramas, ethnic dramas, sexual identity dramas. All those things are happening in a way that keep us in a state of flux. And artists are trying to figure out how to articulate that, how to bring some kind of clarity to the experience of whatever community they're a part of. So I think artists are doing what they've been doing historically. I was wondering if either of you could describe the original vision that motivated you to go to so much bother and so much intense organization and collaboration with other people. Was there another precedent that had turned you on in the past that made you want to recreate something like that? Or was it just made up as you went along? Eric had had a vision for a long time to be able to host artists at some kind of a residency. And the church came up. Everyone in the village knew that the church had been sold by the Methodists. Not their fault. They just couldn't keep it going. People were chagrined that it was first going to be condominiums and then it was going to become a manufactory for a woman who does textile designs out here, which everyone was very pleased about. But then the amount of repairs that she had to do because the bell tower was leaning out into the street six degrees. And that was huge money. Now we've been sort of following this development because it was always in the news. So we were quite aware of it. And I think for both of us, there was a thing in the back of our heads, wow, wouldn't that be great? And then suddenly it was available and just jumped into it. Eric particularly had scouted it out to see how beautiful or not it was. And it was extremely beautiful, even stripped down with tarps flapping in the windows from which all the stained glass had been removed with the pile of dirt on this beautiful stone floor was just like dirt and planks. And even in that condition, it was just flabbergastingly beautiful. So we were able to get it, which was super exciting. We just kind of run with it. And we talked about Zag Harbor, how much we loved it, how great its history was. So the idea of being able to manifest that in the church as more than just a regular Klinstall or Vanity Museum. It was so exciting that it just kind of took off. 
Right. If you put cultural facilities within a town, the health and prosperity of that town will continue a far longer time than factories. And so that's another justification for trying to do what we're doing. Structurally, the town is unique because it's anchored on the south end by the Whaley Museum, the library, and the church. In the middle of town, it is anchored by the cinema. And at the north end of town, it's anchored by Bay Street Theater. So we have a town that is about the size of a mall that is anchored by cultural institutions. I felt the opportunity to bring people in to be creative, even for short periods of time, would keep the tradition moving forward in some way, keep the legacy alive. By this point, Eric and April brought in their friend Lee Skolnick, a New York and Sag Harbor-based architect. Together, they began to make plans for a combined residency, museum-type gallery space, and community center. So there was this church, which was kind of a white elephant, right off Main Street. It was built in 1835, and it was actually built in another part of town and then moved in the 1860s to its present location. And it had gone through several hands, and it was sitting there, all boarded up. It was a real eyesore. And Eric took a look at it and said, this would make an amazing art center. We had talked for years about how it would be great to have an artist residency in Sag Harbor. So he spent a lot of time and effort getting a hold of it. And we started talking about what would we do because it had been gutted. Right. The previous owner had gutted it. He had stabilized it with iron and steel strapping and braces. Essential kind of New England church. It's very restrained. And for all those reasons, I really liked it a lot. It was very pared down. But we had to figure out was, where do you position what you're going to do? What I responded to was this incredible exposed wood timber frame skeleton that was the interior. And that would never have been seen by anyone because, of course, it was hidden by wood lath strips and then plaster. And then on top of the plaster would be wood detailing moldings and ornamentation. But what we said was, no, let's celebrate this structure, which is so muscular and at the same time delicate. We said, we're going to take the approach, which is what's old is old and what's new is new. Right. So we would create a dialogue between the authentic historic fabric and then anything that we put in that was new would be very easily recognizable. We, we actually created a formula where we used three materials, white oak, which was very smooth, light, reflective, never would have been used in this kind of structure. We used metal railings that were clearly new. And then we just used paint. (laughs) This this wasn't a big budget project. We were being very frugal. And the other thing we took really extra care to create was the sense of a reveal between what was old and what was new. So everywhere you look, you'll find these very delicate connections between what's old and what's new. You have a very modern revealed elevator connecting the three levels, right? It's ironic that where the altar would have been, we had this very transparent glass elevator. One of my favorite parts is the way you recycled the old plaster lathe. So so this is the stuff that in 19th century buildings is underneath those plaster walls and holds the plaster, but you cleaned it up, you recycled it, and then actually use it as the wall surface. 
you nail lath strips onto the framing right. and you cover them with plaster, which is liquid. And what happens is white plaster seeps in between the uh, lath strips and stains the framing. So we had this very subtle pattern of little white horizontal <laughs> stains. And it makes it very painterly surface that you would be hard-pressed to create from scratch. Yeah, and it would cost, cost a fortune. Eric, what is your long-term vision for the church? We renovated the building with the idea of trying to keep it as open, as flexible as possible to be able to house, promote, display, nurture as many of the art forms as we could possibly do. The driving force behind the church is to try to make the experience of creativity feel less complicated, more natural, to feel what it is, which is enlivening, fun, surprising, invigorating, you know, things that bring us energy and a breathing space. A great gift that we received because they had moved the church was that we gained a lower level, which was not a basement because it was actually above ground, and it was composed of 22-inch thick stone walls. So that lower level is used as an event space, and it can also be studio space for whatever the visiting artists are doing. The ground floor would be more of the traditional artist studio type of space. It's got a concrete floor, nice high ceilings, walls on rollers so they can be moved around so visiting artists can shape their own spatial needs. In the back, you added a section, right, that does have apartments for three or four artists. We made a two-story kind of building attached to the back of the church, which has four rather lavish <laughs> Minimal, but but really beautiful sleeping spaces and then a shared living room, dining, kitchen area. And um, so that's where visiting artists, fellows get, exactly. what are they, for a few months at a time? Yeah, it depends. I mean, the, the first group that came in was a dance group. I think it was from Martha Graham. Right. And they just fell in love <laughs> with being there. Sag Harbor was this famous whaling port that had shipbuilders and coopers and all these amazing craftsmen. In place of stained glass windows, there are these portraits that Eric painted of well-known yeah. residents of Sag Harbor. I'm just going to read you a few of the, the characters that are depicted in these windows. Nelson Algren, George Balanchine, James Fenimore Cooper, E.L. Doctorow, Betty Friedan, Spalding Gray, Langston Hughes, Gordon Matta-Clark, which I didn't even know he used to come there, Herman mm -hmm. Melville, John Steinbeck, Lanford Wilson, James Salter, just to name some of them, and there are others, but I think that's a beautiful touch. We have to credit Eric. He had this idea that he wanted to somehow celebrate artists like the ones you've mentioned who worked in Sag Harbor over literally centuries. And then we had this challenge where we had 20-foot tall openings on the side walls. Had there been stained glass originally? Areas of stained glass. It wasn't all stained glass. So we said, okay, let's be honest. We're putting something new in these openings. but how could we do something that might have been in there originally, which would be stained glass? And who do we celebrate? Right. It's not going to be the 12 apostles. It's not going to be Jesus on the cross. So Eric said, well, why don't I do portraits of these creative people? It's a brilliant idea. I love that detail, Eric. 
that's really honoring the history, as you said. Instead of Christian iconography, you have local iconic figures. Yeah, it's our saints, right? You know, the art saints. The criteria was simple but limiting. They all had to be dead. They all had to have a direct connection to Sag Harbor specific, not to the Hamptons, but to Sag Harbor specifically. They all had to have creative output that had national or international impact. So the message was that there's a long history of creative people that spun the world with their creativity, that contributed over a long period of time to the culture. So from out of a small town came big impact. That's also part of the beauty of the real legacy of Sag Harbor, which is that it tolerated difference. So it attracted a gay community, attracted a black community. It wasn't that it was completely integrated, but it was tolerant and left people alone, which is a very agreeable environment. I think that must go back to that prosperous period in the 19th century, right, where you had all these people from all over the world. And if you read Melville, you know, what a tolerant mix of indigenous people and every kind of race. And Sag Harbor really had that up to, I guess, the Civil War period, right? And then it became a sleepy backwater for about 100 years. It actually had one of the first truly integrated communities in America in the early 1800s because a lot of the people who lived in the Eastville area who were comprised of Native Americans, African Americans, and largely Irish, but generally immigrants, and they had a community that all got along beautifully. And then in the 20th century, one of the people that Eric so beautifully depicted is this woman named Amazalie Meredith, for instance. And Amazalie Meredith was an unlicensed architect in the international Bauhaus tradition. She worked in Virginia, largely. She summered in Sag Harbor. She and her sister, Maud Terry, bought tracts of land. And they were able to purchase enough land to start to sell it to successful Black people from Manhattan who came out and summered here as well. So we have one of the only extant Black resort communities in America that is still thriving. And when people who have seen the Green Book, it's possible now to say, you know, the Green Book, this was a safe place for people to have summered and it still exists. They're really rare. Miami, Hilton Head, Amelia Island, all Black resort communities of that type. And it was this opportunity for Eric to paint these beautiful portraits of people that people really should know about. I'm sorry to go back. No, you go, Eric. uh, Yeah. The history of Sag Harbor, the mythology you just expressed that it kind of went sleepy after the whaling. But actually, the history of Sag Harbor is that it constantly reinvents itself. So it had an ice company that would deliver ice to the Caribbean. It had silverware, watch cases, uh, lunar lander parts, torpedo timers. It it always had something, and, and that something went out into a global market. And that's why Sag Harbor saw themselves as integral to the larger world, not isolated from it. And the arts went along with it because basically people were left alone and the community had a diversity that was rich and colorful. And it was cheap. I I mean, compared to the other Hamptons, it was cheaper than any place else. Yeah, exactly. But the thing that compelled me 
was what happened when the cinema burned down. April and a group of people had been working on trying to buy the cinema, which had gone up for sale. And the Sag Harbor Partnership was trying to buy it as a way of keeping it a cinema. Right. Um, it occupies the center of town. It's the logo of the town. For people who don't know it, it was a classic kind of white stucco facade, very Art Deco, 1920s, with that great neon sign that says Sag Harbor on it. And it really was centerpiece of the village. The place burned down. And after it was proven that it was an arson, because, of course, everybody assumed it was. Uh, they they the did urgency. prove that it wasn't. Yeah, they proved yeah. that it wasn't arson, yeah. That it was not arson, yeah. Yeah, I no, still uh, thought it was, yeah, okay. Yeah. No, no it, was a, it was coincidental, but it was not deliberate. But it, it became even more urgent to get it because it had lost whatever status it had as a landmark. Right. And so it could be bought by someone who wanted to put a mall in there, et cetera. That's how you guys started, right? I mean, that's how you started thinking about that was definitely something where April became incredibly invested in how to maintain and rebuild and also personally connect to the town we lived in since 85. Right. And the buying of the burned out cinema was a crowdsourcing thing where people came in with small donations that amounted to a million dollars. That says that there's a broad base of people who wanted that cinema to be there. Actually didn't come in at first from billionaires. It came in from artists successful in their field. So it was saying that the top of the pyramid in regards to this important building was the creative life that was connected to this town. And that that's what personally inspired me to try to expand my vision of artist residence to the church, which is a right. much bigger space. Every donation counts. Every person that wants to offer support, it doesn't matter if people are docents or they're licking stamps or they give you $5 or they give you $5,000. It's the participation of the community is what makes something that is intended for the community real. Otherwise, you can you know, hang up your hat. April was incredibly involved in getting the cinema up, running be what it is, which was amazing, and then began to phase that out so that she could then come and help me develop the church. I'd love to hear from April. What was the most interesting thing you learned from that process? Because you did such an amazing job pulling it all together. It must have been a great learning curve, too, in terms of your relationship with the community and the zoning board and all the rest. Learning about zoning and architectural review and the other boards was not fun. But the thing that we tried to do and that seemed like the clear direction to me from the beginning was remain transparent. Don't try to trick the village or trick people or anything. Just be completely transparent that the cinema and the church have to be for everyone insofar as we can make that happen. And we have not completely succeeded in doing that yet at either place, but it's a ongoing goal. And that we needed the support from everyone that we could possibly get. Are you trying to do that through programming mainly uh, to reach a, a broader general audience than maybe the, what you would imagine would be attracted to the, the church without much effort? 
really in every way we try to think about those things. Like I think yeah. we succeeded in making it a welcome place for the Latinx community because we don't have our website in Spanish. We know a few people were trying to roll that forward, but it's such a complex thing to even do a startup like this. Right. And plus the church is not a normal Kunstala. We're trying to do inventive programming where we have not only art exhibitions, which have been wonderful and successful, thanks to Eric and Sarah Cochran, our curator, but we also have other programs going that are much more diverse and unexpected. Drivers, start your engines. Those are the sounds of Road Rave, a freeform symphony of car horns conducted by Lori Anderson on September 18th, 2021, in conjunction with Road Rage, an exhibition at the church. The Creativity Conference is a day of staggering fascinations and surprises and information, like nothing anybody had ever experienced. So trying different kinds of programming and then trying to consider all the different ways that creativity can manifest itself and trying to make that welcoming aspect of what we're doing at the church is basically the goal. One of the things that we're finding is that there's an awful lot of great art collectors that are out here. Right, sure. Who have these major collections that are more than happy to ventilate them. Right. And so we've been blessed by very generous collectors lending fabulous works. So it's just about finding what they have and how we can apply it. We don't want to just have another vanity museum or whatever. I mean, nothing wrong with people sharing their wealth of their art. We have a whole different set of goals and ambitions. And of course, as we've been rolling things out, new ideas come along. And because it is flexible space, it's given us an opportunity, for instance, when we have dancers at the church to show works in progress. And we've partnered now with the Guggenheim and Guild Hall on these works in process. That's um, wonderful. It's a different way of looking at art and creativity, and we hope that it will be more accessible to people. You could make the argument that the way you're approaching this, which is much more flexible and open-ended and spontaneous in a way, compared to an official museum that has a heavy-duty board of directors, and usually the planning schedule is like four years in advance or five years in advance. To me, it's a model of what new museums or new cultural centers, creative centers, whatever you want to call them, should be following into the 21st century. Because the 19th century notion of a museum or a kunstall is so out of date now. If you try to plan it too much, right, they become obsolete. Because who knows what the next generation of young artists are going to come up with. It's going to be some insane thing that cannot be contained in one box or another box. I'd love to hear from either of you or both of you, and this is kind of a dirty word now, but especially in the context of Sag Harbor, the idea of gentrification. And I know in the Hamptons, it's on a whole other level, obviously, that you can be a millionaire and you're gentrified out of your home because of a billionaire coming beside you. I've lived out there all my life. I finally left for a lot of reasons, but there is something that I think you're dealing with that has something to do with that, maybe counteracting that, or maybe it adds to it. I don't know. Have you thought much about what you were saying about serving the whole community and, and even how 
those lower income communities, how they survive, I, I don't understand. And you see what they call the trade parade of guys working, you know, who are driving up for two hours from, you know, Yapank or Spion. People who work in the restaurants can't afford to live even 50 miles away. There's something unsustainable about Eastern Long Island, just physically. But there are communities around the country and around the world that are changing. I don't think either of us has illusions about the affordable community housing crisis in this village. Yeah. And it is a community housing crisis because if long-term residents are being forced out or they just can't afford to not sell their house because it's such a great deal for them, this is critical. And one of the great people on the Village Board of Trustees here had written a beautiful op-ed in the Sag Harbor Express that was about the fact that his children were going to have to move and they didn't want to, and he didn't want them to. It was heartrending. This is something that no couple, no small group of people, however devoted, are going to be able to make a dent. But luckily, a village right now has an affordable housing team working on this crisis. And at the church, we're going to have an affordable community housing forum. So in that way, we're trying to partner with other people out here who have similar concerns, including legislative officials. Everybody needs to pitch in. And luckily, there are some developers, there are some individuals, there are some architects. Lee Skolnick is one who has yeah. been very concerned with this. And we're very proud to have worked with him on the church and proud of his focus on this. We all have to like come together as a community and be inventive. If anyone was betting on us to succeed in trying to slow down this inevitability of, you know, priced out of the, the world that is going on in the Hamptons, they'd be foolish to bet on us. But April and I are betting on ourselves to find ways to do a couple of things. One is try to change the direction of the Sag Harbor gentrification to include arts as the next production in the long history of things that were produced in this town. Now it's time for the arts to be the product. Right. And so my fantasy is to try to find ways of getting the arts to be so much a reason why people come here they come to seek out the programming, the experiential, the creative. That's the, the thing that keeps it authentic within what I see as the, the long legacy and DNA of the town. Right. It's a race against time because right. the speed with which the town is being outpriced and the pandemic didn't help because everybody moved out here and the real estate right. went and nobody Exploded. can afford to be here yeah. anymore. It's, you know, all those things are talking against our fantasy that we still have time to do it. How, if at all, does your independent studio practice inform this kind of public work that you're doing now? I have an answer for that. I paint paintings that take a long time to make. So I have learned a certain amount of patience. That's mm. <laughs> been really useful because <laughs> the cinema took four years, or four and a half years, and this is still a work in progress. So I think when you start a painting, it's really can be an incredibly murky, you know, moment. I 
know very few people who say, oh boy, now I'm going to start a new painting. It's almost always like, oh God, I have to, I have to go through this whole anxiety about getting a painting going again. Sometimes it takes a long time and you just have to stick to it. And you describe just one example of a certain painting that takes you through that process that makes you learn patience. I love that description. Every painting is like that, <laughs> more or less. Some of them are more or less excruciating, you know, if you run into those problems. And sometimes it feels like a painting kind of helps you out and helps you paint it somehow. April, how long do they take usually, one of your large landscape pieces? Usually a couple of months, you know, two, maybe three months. And then the last one was like four months. It was ridiculous. I just kept going back into it, but it's not consistent. Eric, do you have a similar thing? I would answer the question uh, differently in that I make a work that is meant to reach as broad an audience as possible. I speak through my work to life that we share. And what I've found is that my work goes out into a world that's becoming more and more isolated, more and more elitist, more and more detached from the lives of others. One of the things we talk about is how to separate art from creativity, because the truth is, is that people have a desire to be creative, but are intimidated thinking that it has to turn into art at some point. Right. And the truth is, it doesn't have to turn into art at all. And that they don't have to worry about it, because when it does turn into art, that is so far down the road that it's only the concern of those who commit themselves to be artists, which is different than those who Mm want to have a creative life. So we talk about ways of exposing people to the acts of creativity. We have tried to do exhibitions where the theme is something so broad and, and ubiquitous or common that people walking in feel empowered that they already know a lot about the subject matter. Uh, You know, we did a show about cars and and art related to cars. Uh, We're opening a show on themes of water. And my belief is people will walk into these exhibitions knowing a lot about it. And then what they do is they see that there are artists that have handled the same subject matter in ways they didn't expect. Right. And they get into the the creative leap that happens. Oh, I didn't know you could do this or would think about this for capturing water, et cetera. Right. I love the way you describe that. And in a sense, it's bringing your own work out into the world again in a different form, as you say, away from, you know, the perceived arcane elitist world of the New York galleries or the international art market, those art fairs with champagne and VIP rooms and all that stuff. In terms of the system that art has been a part of for 150 years, that's changing radically and may prove to finally come to some kind of collapse. 
because of the speculative aspect of the market, which encourages people to buy artwork as commodity and put it in a warehouse never to be seen, pricing structures, you know, museums can't afford to do big exhibitions because the insurance values are too high or can't afford to collect art anymore because it's too expensive. The actual ecosystem of the art world is changing at a great speed right now. But I still believe that the artists are doing the thing that they're supposed to be doing. So That's well said. If you had to answer, this is another question, but what's more fulfilling for you? Is it your studio work or the community outreach and engagements that you're involved in? I think I'm trying to find a balance between the two. There are certainly uh, aspects of trying to create the structure of the church that is compelling and has a kind of problematics to it that I'm not used to, which is engaging and you know trying to figure out solutions to it. But also, I'm trying to maintain a disciplined sort of relationship to my studio practice because ultimately that's where my investment in my own life is. April, how do you respond? I was just reading uh, Carl Safina. You might know him. He's a Mm -hmm. widely published author. And he was talking about climate change and collapse and all this stuff. And towards the end of his article, he started talking about beauty and how critical beauty is. So the romantic in the room here wants to say that it brought tears to my eyes and made me think about Keats' adage about truth is beauty, beauty, truth. And by that, I don't mean pretty is more important than ugly. I mean that beauty has hard truths about it and truths, no matter how hard they are, have a certain kind of beauty about them. So works of art that still try to cope with mortality and tenderness and compassion and emotion and fragility and vulnerability and and the hard truth of how precious and fleeting life is. Artists just have to keep doing that. Has the public work you're doing changed your approach to your studio practice in any way? I mean, I find that the community work is really fulfilling and engaging. And I like learning from meeting all sorts of different people that I would not ordinarily be in contact with as an artist. But my studio and my art is what really feeds my soul. So if I don't get into my studio regularly, I get incredibly cranky and annoying. (laughs) (laughs) That's good to know. (laughs) Wow, it is good good for me to remember too. So, I mean, things can seem so urgent, but the most important thing to me is, is to make sure that I'm getting the work done still. So I stay connected to my kind of true self. I don't know how better to say it. Yeah, well, your own center, your spiritual, whatever mystical center of your being, right, is your is in your work, I assume. Yes, it is. It's definitely where, I mean, the way that I work helps me locate myself spiritually in the world, and I absolutely need that, and I need to do it over and over and over again. There's a discipline that one has with their studio right? that is, you know, based on how you carve time out for yourself, how you begin the long process of investigation and discovery and how you find ways of getting excited about something, how you steel yourself against disappointments within your own creative uh, abilities and all that stuff. So 
that's been there for as long as I've been an artist. So part of that is making sure the public doesn't come in the door while I'm in my studio. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to thank our guests, Eric Fischel, April Gornick, and Lee Skolnick for being on the show today. I'm your host, Alistair Gordon, and this is Poetics of Place, a production of Electrocast Media and Gordon DeRee Studio. The Church Arts Center is located at 48 Madison Street in the heart of Sec Harbor. If you'd like to learn more about their upcoming programs, go to the website www.thechurchsecharbor.org and support their community initiatives with a generous tax-deductible donation. Special thanks go out to composer Bruce Wallisoff, who kindly let us play a short segment of his work, The Loom, Part 3, a composition inspired by the watercolors of Eric Fischel, a friend of the composers. We also wish to thank the Montage Music Society, who performed the piece. The producer of the podcast is David Tausick. Our executive producers are Mark Netter and Peter Rafelson. Our editors, Cameron Castro. And I am your host, Alistair Gordon, for Poetics of Place. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric House Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric acid.